going to be talking about family this morning, the church as a family of faith, a family of God. We're going to take a look at uh, Chris Scruggs, uh, chapter 11 of his book, The Crisis of Discipleship, where he's going to zero in on uh, living in a transformational community. That's important uh, in order to be a, a disciple. Um, let's, let's have a word of prayer first. Any prayer concerns or praises we want to be lifting up? Hmm? Oh, my Ann? Yeah, yeah. She's doing well. Her fractured wrist is... I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything. Last Monday, you're supposed to find out if you're going to be able to have the surgery. We did a stress test last Monday, so I don't know how that came out. I don't either. I rely on the hospital list for all my information. Pat Brodine had a clear uh, no cancer discovered, so praise God for that. Um, it, oh, we need to definitely pray for my Texas Rangers. Uh, they've got to win two straight to make it in the World Series, but they've already done that in Houston against Houston. So. Interesting playoff. I'm a baseball, those who don't know me, I'm a baseball fanatic. Uh, inter- no, the home team has yet to win. And the road team has yet to lose. I'm sorry, Brett, but, you know... Uh, I knew, I knew there would be at least one thing I didn't like about you. That's the only thing, though. So, uh, anyway, and after living in Dallas for 14 years, I'm a, and they were my Washington senators. I grew up in the Maryland, Virginia area. And I grew up with the senators, and they followed me when I came to play ball at Trinity. And so I'm, I'm a diehard Rangers fan. Still have not recovered from the 2011 World Series loss when we had it and blew it. So, I'm hoping they make it and do it this year. Okay, we're going to, uh, on a serious note, any other prayer concerns or praises? Yeah, we just talked about that. We're not sure what the results yet have been of his, whether his heart tests and all that. But we'll keep him in our prayers. Um, anything else? The situation in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, the Middle East. Oh, man. Yeah. Israel, that's been on my shoulders. The what? The Middle East, yeah. Israel and its Orthodox faith has been tested as it deals with Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, my, my take on that is, you know, that will never be settled till Christ returns. Yes. It's been going on for thousands of years, and we'll probably never be able to fix it, but we can try to at least get it more peaceful. And it was for a while, but... I'm not going to get political in here but uh, this morning, but you know what I mean. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's a mandate in Scripture. So. Only the Prince of Peace, and both of those groups lack that. Although I don't want to say all, a lot of Palestinians are Christians, and a lot of Jews are messianic, fulfilled Messianic Jews. So 
Some have met the Prince of Peace. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. Anything else we need to be praying about? Well, let's go before the Lord. Lord God, we recognize your presence, your sovereignty. Uh, you raise up nations. You bring nations down. Um, disabuse us of any ideas that uh, the solution to our, our nation's problems or the Middle East or anywhere else, Ukraine, Russia, is military or political or economic. Again, we pray, Prince of Peace, bring peace to our world, Lord. I pray that you would regenerate the hearts of any world leaders, such as Vladimir Putin, Premier Xi in China, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, um, uh, our own president. If any of these people have not met you, and I'm not sure they have, not in a life-changing way, that you would regenerate their hearts and bring them into a relationship with Christ that will enable them to look at their lives and the world through the lens of the cross rather than a lens of lust for power. And Lord, uh, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that, you, that there would just be a cessation of atrocities there and in Ukraine and in the streets of our own country. Uh, Lord, help us to be part of the solution, not a part of the problem. By being men and women sold out to Christ and men and women of grace and mercy. And um, Lord, we can't do that in our own strength, so give us your Holy Spirit to do that. We thank you for the great report on Pat Brodine that she's cancer-free. We pray for our brother Chuck Beatty that you would strengthen him and bring him toward total healing and restoration. We pray uh, for other folks that we know of who uh, need your healing touch in a variety of ways. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would build us up through what I say today here, that we would um, come out of this class more determined to live the way you've called us to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ as his disciples. And we ask all this in his precious name. Amen. Well, Chris has titled the chapter 11 of his book, Live in Transformational Community. You know, the biblical story of God and his people is one that's very personal. It's very relational, but it's never individualistic. You know, we live in a, the Western culture is very individualistic. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And there was a book written, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago uh, as an interesting title, which describes this individualism in America called Bowling Alone. You know, can you imagine? So there's a lot of people who just go and bowl alone. There's a lot of people who do a lot of things alone. And uh, if you look at the uh, millennials on down, uh, they have trouble really integrating in community. They're, a lot of that's due to social media. They think they're connecting with people, but they're really not. I mean, I have 800 friends. Well, do you really? Um, there was a, a car ad a few years ago. I don't know if it was... Nissan or wherever, it showed this girl in the darkness of her bedroom, and she goes, oh, that's a cute little kitty. I have 8,000 friends. And then her, my parents are just out of it. And it shows her parents with another couple, and they're uh, off-roading in their uh, forest or whatever it is, you know, and having fun, really connecting while the daughter thinks she is. But So that's a real, and it's leading to things like uh, all kinds of, um, name your poison. Um, are the generations 
uh, millennial and below are really suffering. And there's a lack of really uh, physical connection uh, in a meaningful way. Um, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians, not in the Bible. Here's some current cultural myths. You've heard this. I'm spiritual, but not religious. That means, you know, I do my own thing spiritually. I don't connect with anybody. I've said in here before, religion, I used to not like that term because I thought it stood for, you know, just rote ritualism and all that kind of stuff. So uh, when people ask me what religion I am, I'd say none. And they say, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Uh, and I'd say, no, but I'm in a relationship with Christ. That's what it's really all about. But I've changed my tune on that when I found out what religion literally means. To be religious literally means to be connected. That's it, connected. Can you be spiritual in a healthy way and not be religious? In other words, not connected with other people. I don't think so. Unless you're on a deserted island by yourself, you're in solitary confinement, yeah, but not, that's not the norm. That's not the norm. Um, I can faithfully worship by myself with my Bible out on the hillside on Sunday mornings. I don't need to go to a church. Really? I don't think so. I can be a Christian by myself. I don't need the messed up church. Hey, if you're a pastor, I can guarantee you, if there are any people that know how messed up the church is, it's us. We live in it. We breathe it. We look behind the curtain, every curtain the church has. Dick Ryan, who was a, when I came to this church as an associate, he was our older adults pastor. And he pulled me aside and he said, Ron, he poured a bunch of wisdom in me. And one of the things he said is, if you can work on a church staff and remain a Christian, that's a miracle. <laughs> you see all the blood and guts. And when people come to me and say, the church is really messed up, I always say, uh, oh, I agree. It's a hospital. It's a hospital. It's a hospital for sinners. For 14 years, I was on the board of Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. And, uh, and when people say that to me, I say, let's say you've never been to a hospital. And uh, I take you to Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. But I start we, on a tour with you. We go first to the morgue. Then I take you to uh, an operating room that they just finished surgery, and there's blood all over the place. Then I take you to ICU with, you know, tubes and pumps gone, and people, and um, how, how are you feeling about this place? Oh, it's awful. It's, this is a horror show. No, it's a hospital. It's healing people. The difference, though, between the church and Presbyterian Hospital is most of the doctors and nurses are not physically ill. In the church, everybody, pastors included, were all spiritual basket cases. So it's a hospital for sinners. It, we ought to expect to find a lot of, ugh. if you've never read the book People of the Lie by Scott Peck, he's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist who became a Christian while he was writing his previous book called The Road Less Traveled. And in the introduction to People of the Lie, he tells about his conversion experience. And People of the Lie uh, answers the question, why are there so many messed up people in the church? It's fascinating. I, I got Lewis to read it, and we got uh, some other people in the church 40 years ago reading it. It, it really is an eye-opener. Um, I want you to, the church is a, is a family, though, but it's, it's, every family is dysfunctional. So we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, every family in Scripture is dysfunctional. 
Even Jesus' family's dysfunctional. Remember, he's preaching one day, and somebody comes and says, your mother and your siblings are outside. They think you're a nut, and they want to you know, intervene and put you in a, a loony bin. Um, they change their tune after a while. And some people, somebody, a lot of people have come to me, you know, I, I'm not a Christian because the church is just full of hypocrites. It is. What would you expect? In fact, every human being is a hypocrite. We're just the ones that admit it. You know, everybody has a code of ethics they say they live by. Who achieves that? Nobody. Nobody. So uh, we're just, when we have that prayer of confession Sunday morning, we're confessing that we're all hypocrites. When we sing hymns, I'm going to give you all my all, Jesus. We don't get out of, outside the door of the church. We've already broken that. At least I have. So I used to say from the pulpit of Highland Park Perez in Dallas, I'd say, you know what HPPC really stands for? Hypocritical Presbyterians Pursuing Christ. Let's just, let's just be honest. And I always say to the person that says, well, the church is full of hypocrites. I always say, Good, right? There's room for one more. Come on, join us. Well, I don't believe in organized religion. Well, join our church because we're about as disorganized as you can get. St. <laughs> Cyprian has a great quote, and I believe it's true. This is one of the early church fathers. He says there's no salvation outside of the church. Ooh, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But think about it. What is the church? What's another synonym for the church? The body of Christ. Now, sh place that in there instead of church. There's no salvation outside of the body of Christ. Do you believe that? That seems, yeah. What's another synonym for the church? In right at the end of Revelation. The bride of Christ. Jesus is going to come back for his bride. And if you say, well, I'm not a part of the church, then you're going to miss the wedding according to common sense and common theology. The English poet Robert Southey once said, I could believe in and follow Jesus if he didn't drag behind him his leprous bride, the church. Mm. Well, she is kind of leprous. But we need to be a part of community to be a faithful disciple. But here's where we Presbyterians messed up a lot, and this is what Chris really wants to press. He says, to live in transformational community. What's he saying there? A lot of times we think that being a disciple and making other disciples is just about transfer of information. Get them to believe all the right stuff, and that is important. But we Presbyterians... We're, we're comfortable with transfer of information. We're not as comfortable with transformation. In other words, becoming a part of the body of Christ is not just believing all the right things, but it's allowing Christ through his Holy Spirit to really transform our lives. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, when you meet Christ, most people are going to ask you, what difference does that make in your life? If they don't see a difference in our lives, then we really give them the right to walk away. That doesn't mean we're perfect. 
um, at all. We're a hospital for sinners. I find that my own personal experience has been when I have publicly sinned and then immediately owned up to it. And, you know, I always say, if you mess up, confess up and confess it. I've had people come and tell me, that's what made me realize the Christian faith was real. Not that you were perfect, but when you weren't perfect, you quickly admitted it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hang around with people that don't mess up, perfect people. Nobody does. And so don't think you, when you sin publicly, you've got to hide it. No, just put it out there and say, man, I really blew it, but I'm forgiven in Christ. And that's sometimes a more powerful testimony than walking, you know, without making any mistakes. Um, I want you to think about your own family for a minute and think about, just picture in your mind a couple people in your own family that you can't stand. Don't mention any names. Or anything. <laughs> now, I want you to think about if you're a covenant partner of First Press San Antonio, think about a couple of people that, you know, it'd be great if they transferred their letter up to some other church. Uh, there are probably some people like that. I can think of a couple. Um, now I'm going to read you, because those kind of people make us think, well, I'm not sure I'm going to stay at this church, because if you've never read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you need to. Listen to chapter two. Now, Screw Tape Letters is letters from, Screw Tape's uh, one of the top demons, and he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and each demon is given a patient, that's somebody that's become a Christian, and their job is to try to mess up their, their lives. And when he talks about the, en- the enemy is God, and so this is uh, Screwtape writing a letter to his nephew, Wormwood. He says, I know with grave displeasure, Wormwood, Wormwood, that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread but through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes um, even our best, bolder, boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him a shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. 
You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must be therefore somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy has become enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey, buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses with his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. Once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. All you then have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. If he has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet, what he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So, you know, uh, no church is perfect. Church is full of sinners. Um, but we need the church. 
church doesn't need us as much as we need the church. We talk about imago dei being made in the image of God. And we've talked about that being, uh, that means that human beings are essentially personal because God is person with a capital P. But it also means that we're relational because God relates to us. But it also means that you and I are in the image of God are to be communal. God in his very nature as Holy Trinity is communal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in community before we were ever or any of the other creation was ever brought into to being. So that's God's very nature is communal. So this idea that I can do life on my own, I can do spirituality on my own, I can do church on my own, it doesn't jive with who God is in his very nature. So let's move on into Chris's slides. That was just my take on what I think he's trying to get at here. He says, we're the family of God. Paul uses many metaphors for the church, but perhaps the most important today is the family of God. In a society characterized by many dysfunctional families, people need the church to be a family of healing and restoration. Um, even though we're a hospital for sinners, I think the goal, the chief goal of every church should be to be a healthy church. Uh, when I was a young pastor, the big thing was church growth. The church growth movement was booming, Willow Creek Church. and I'm glad I came out of a church that was steeped in Reformed theology and went to a seminary that taught that. I never got snookered by that. I never felt like numbers is what it's all about. You know, let's dumb down the church, make it look like a movie theater, and don't say anything about sin and repentance or hell. Uh, entertain and uh, make everybody feel good. And what that, that is wrecked the American church. And that was done under my watch, my generation, the boomer pastors. We wrecked the American church. And we're paying a price. We're paying a price. And uh, preaching to felt needs of people seems compassionate. And that's what congregations want. But that's not what you need. You need the whole counsel of the word of God. Um, that's why I, I was a Lectio Continua preacher. I just preached straight through books of the Bible or sections of Scripture. That forced me to preach texts I would never choose. And it forced you all to listen to sermons you didn't want to hear. But that's a part of preaching the whole counsel of God. That's my ordination vow, to preach the whole counsel of God. And uh, if you leave this church, if you move or go someplace, always find a church where the pastor is expositorily preaching the word. That's going to be probably a more healthy church. And so I, every church I've pastored, I've tried to work toward church health rather than um, church growth. But healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. But so does cancer. I can tell you some churches that are cancerous and they're booming. Um, the Bible makes clear that we're part of a family. Guess what? Did you choose your family? No. It's really the same way with your family, the church. Oh, wait a minute. I checked out all the churches in town, and I chose First Press. That's one way to look at it. When you are looking for a church, the best thing to do is to say, Lord, lead me to the place where you want me to be. That may not mean you wind up in the church you thought you were going to be in. Maybe God has a job for you to do in such and such. 
I don't know this guy. I don't know whatever happened to him, but I have a friend who said he had a friend. He was an evangelical Presbyterian pastor, and he put in his uh, dossier to a Unitarian church that was looking for a pastor, and he got it. I said, what? He said, yeah, and he's going to subversively try to bring that church to Christ, and I thought, wow. He said he felt called to do that. He felt called, God was leading him to take a Unitarian church. Wow. Um, we don't choose our family. Uh, you're here. You may, you can list on a page every reason that brought you here. Ultimately, God brought you here to first place. He's got a job for you to do in this family. There's something about this family that needs you, and you need this family. Here are some markers of a healthy church. A healthy church usually has 50% plus of its members in worship on any given Sunday. Um, a real healthy church has attenders at worship exceeding their membership. That was my church in Baltimore. We had about 700 members and almost 900 in, in worship. A lot of people wouldn't join because it was a PCUSA church. <laughs> Great. We were glad to have a healthy church does a lot of adult baptisms. That's because you're winning people to Christ out of the secular culture. Um, a healthy church has more professions of faith in new member classes than transfers of letter. In Dallas, I was convicted one time in my quiet time that, um, well, let me proceed that by saying 88% of churches in America are stagnant or in decline. I kind of think it's probably more. That was a stat of about 10 years ago. It's probably worse. Of the 12% of the churches that are growing in membership, 11% of that 12%, 11 of those 12%, are by shuffling sheep uh, or stealing sheep, just shifting bodies around. Only 1% of American churches are truly growing the kingdom adding new disciples, making new disciples. So I was convicted in my quiet time uh, to go before the session at Highland Park President and give him that stat, and I said, I think we're called to be a one-percenter church. And they committed themselves to doing that. And I said, I, don't, I guess it's the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I, this figure popped in my mind, session, that I and we are to pray that every one of our new member classes is at, is at least 30% professions of faith. We welcome transfers of letter, reaffirmations of faith, but 30% professions of faith, new Christians. Will you join me? They did. That was probably, I don't know, 2009. I left after 2014. We never had a new member class that wasn't 30%, at least 30% new believers. Lord, honor our... We had one membership class that was 100% professions of faith. And that was like 35 people. I was like, what is going on? It was the book of Acts was breaking out there. It was, it was great. Um, we should try to be a health... Not a dif, we're a defunct, dysfunctional family, but we need to be pressing on toward health. Christian community should be unique. In a hyper-individualistic culture, Christians are to live in a life-transforming community. That means we're going against the grain of our current culture. Um, in a lonely and alienated society, Christians will not reach people outside of a life-transforming community. It takes more than words to make a disciple. It takes a community.
And, um, okay. I want to give you an example right out of this class. Some of you may remember about two years ago, I was teaching a series on Reformed theology here. And one Sunday, I looked in the back, and there was a, a Japanese man sitting there. Never seen him before. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. wonder who he is. After class, I went up to him and introduced myself, and I asked him who he was. He said, my name's Shanae. I am a fighter pilot in the Japanese Air Force. I've been assigned to come from Japan to Lackland and do a year's training and something. Um, and I said, are you a Christian? No, I'm a Buddhist. I said, okay, uh, how come you're here? <laughs> you know, how, how, why are you here? And how did you get here? And he said, well, I was lonely. It's lonely. I don't know anybody at Lackland. I don't know anybody in San Antonio. I was lonely, and I got on the Internet and just looked for different communities and I stumbled across First Presbyterian Church. It seemed to be nice. So I thought I'd come and check it out. So he drove all the way from Lackland to here. I said, well, great. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I thought, that's probably the last time we're ever going to see this guy. Next Sunday, boom, he's in the class. In fact, he stayed the whole time. I've never given lectures on Reformed theology, like wondering what a Buddhist is thinking about this. And I kind of geared my lectures to, you know, I didn't want to chase him out of the room. Um, He's, and one day he came to me and said, I'm, I'm, something's happening to me. I'm, I'm being drawn. Uh, now if you know anything about Buddhism, Buddhists are atheists. I mean, they don't have a concept of a creator god. Uh, it's just this force out there, you know, karma, and you become one with the universe. Um, so about two years before that, I had discipled another Buddhist, Sishan. Cambodian, he's part of this class. And I'd take him through a year, we read through a number of different books, Basic Christianity, Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. And so I thought, oh, this guy finally came to me and said, I'm interested, I think I want to become a Christian. And I said, well, do you understand the gospel and all that? And I gave him the book, Basic Christianity by John Stott to read. And I said, if this makes, starts making sense to you and you want to talk about it, we can do that. He said it, it was. He, it, something was happening. He was being drawn. So he said, I, I think I've given my life to Jesus. Oh. So I said, he needs to be discipled. So, Sashan, it's time for you. You've been discipled. Now make another disciple. And Sashan spent over a year with him. We hooked him up with some Japanese websites with good Christian literature in Japanese. So in his heart language. And um, Shanae has gone back to Japan uh, as a missionary of First Presbyterian Church. I had the joy of baptizing him a year ago last Easter at the sunrise service. So, um, so Sean became a disciple. Then he has discipled Shanae. And now his successor at Lackland, sent over from, is a, a man, we call him Hero. And he's come to Christ. Not through this class, through another class. And he's joined. He's a covenant partner. And then a female Japanese pilot has, is starting to come here as well. 
So I don't know what's going on. We have a pipeline of Japanese Buddhists here in the First Press. Praise God. Praise God. Um, so that's just a personal story of what's going on in the life of our community. Hmm? That's why they're drawn by this, this. They found family here in a totally alien culture to them. I mean, South Texas and Tokyo are, you know, pretty, pretty different. Um, but that Imago Dei modeled by the Trinity, that if we cannot be healthy outside of a family. All families are dysfunctional, but we should be moving toward health. And Chris goes on to say, what is a disciple-making group? Because we can talk about First Pres as being a family, but it's too big to really get down intimate with the whole... You know, when I was in graduate school, finishing my master's at Baylor Med School in Houston, I purposely went to First Presbyterian Church. Why? Because I knew no one would bother me. No one would ask me to teach Sunday school. It was so big, I could easily slip in, worship, get out, and then do my thing, uh, finishing my master's. So um, the bigger the church is, the harder it is really to connect. It would seem, that seems kind of counterintuitive. But it's through small groups that, that are really life transformational. When you live life intimately with other believers. And so um, that's why Chris says a disciple-making group is essential. And it's a small group of people who are committed to a simple goal. Growing in Christ together. Sometimes limits such as 3 to 18 people are placed on the group. I found 18 is too big. I think like three to about eight works best. What's important is intimacy in common life. Um, being, a, I'm not looking to get my martyr card punched, but being a pastor is not easy, and especially of a large church, and I've been pastoring three large churches. Everywhere I've gone, I've looked around at what the world would call my competition. I said, I want to be friends with these guys or else I'm going to be jealous of them. And so I did that uh, in Baltimore. It was a covenant group with four other guys. And then in Dallas, with a guy named Skip Ryan and Jim Dennison. Skip pastored Park City's Prez, which was our splant off Highland Park. And Jim pastored Park City's Baptist. All about the same size churches. I couldn't have made it through 14 years without those two guys. And we really shared intimately our joys, sorrows, blood and guts, the mess and everything else. And there, <laughs> I don't know if you know about the park cities in Dallas, but uh, it's all chiefs, no Indians. And everybody knows how to run the church and wants you to know <laughs> that they know. And so we were all getting beat up to some extent, and we held together, and uh, I wouldn't have made it. My covenant group in Baltimore, we really, we would share, we had a list of six questions to share with each other every week. The last question I hated, question number six was, did I lie to you in any of the previous questions? <laughs> that kept me from doing some sins sometimes because I, I knew, I, oh gosh, the covenant group was coming up. Um, that's an, if you're in a small group, you might think about putting that question in your, uh, 
it really uh, cuts to the chase. So, um, and Jesus modeled this. You know, he, he came to earth, took on bodily form, human form, the God-man. And um, he connected. He created a group, you know, the 12 apostles. Talk about a bunch of dysfunctional folks. Uh, that's one of the reasons you can trust that the Bible is totally true. Think about it. If, if the apostles made up all this stuff and uh, colluded on the four Gospels, and all that, why would they make themselves look up like the Keystone Cops? You know, they make themselves look good. What about the Great Commission? It says they gathered on this hill in Galilee, and Jesus appeared, and they bowed down and worshiped. Does anybody know what the next phrase is? Matthew's writing this. But some doubted. The apostles, some doubted. Right there in the, the risen, bodily risen Christ is in front of them, and some doubted. They wouldn't put that. They're just reporting accurate truth. They were confessing their own uh, foibles. And, you know, that's why when people say, well, there's discrepancies between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's proof the Bible. No, that's proof it's true. Just like if four of us witnessed an accident out on Broadway and the cops, four different cops, took our account of it. Unless we colluded, they're going to sound a little different. I noticed there was a dog in the back seat, but somebody else didn't. So the dog's in one account, it's not in the other. Oh, it must not be true because one has a dog. One has... No. Uh, you can, and that's true throughout Scripture. This was not collusion of a bunch of myths. It's reporting what's the experience, the real experience of the authors of Scripture. So Jesus is our model. He called his family. He shared his life with them. He prayed for them. He taught them, loved them, rebuked them. He allowed them to lead. He gave his life for them. And this intimate uh, relationship that he had. That, and he has that same relationship with us. Let me go back to that. Have you ever thought about this? He's called you to be actually his brother and sister. He's called you. You didn't call him. You, he called you. He makes grace as God takes the initiative. He makes the first, he makes the first move. So Christ has called you to himself by name, actually before the foundation of the world. He shares his life with you. Christ is not somebody that lived 2,000 years ago, and we think back, oh, I wish I could have seen him back. He is alive. He is available. You can have an intimate, personal relationship with him, the living Christ, now. Lewis used to always say, you know, being a Christian is knowing Christ at something other than secondhand. It's that first-hand relationship. He prayed for his disciples. In the Bible, it says Christ intercedes for you and me daily. Now, he has a long, quiet time if he's interceding for all believers every day. Um, he teaches them. And when you are studying, he's teaching us right here today. I'm just his little pitiful servant. The Holy Spirit's doing something here, I hope, um, teaching us. He loves you. Augustine used to say, if you were the only 
person God ever created, Christ would have still come and died for you. You alone. He rebuked them. You know, being in a loving relationship in a small group, sometimes you have to rebuke each other. Um, if somebody's out of line. Now, God gave me no diplomatic skills uh, for some reason. And I, that's one of my areas of struggle. Singleton, Jim Singleton, was, <laughs> he'd come to me and say, oh, you know, you, you get the what right all the time, but it's the how-to. And, it's, and there's a, you know, if somebody's got an ugly dress on, you know, there's <laughs> you don't just say, that's an ugly dress. Um, so I've had to learn over the years, how do I do this graciously, Lord? I like to say I'm a Scot, and I want to pull out my William Wallace sword and get to business. can't always do that. Um, and Christ still rebukes. Uh, he rebukes me all the time. Unfortunately, I give him plenty to work with. He allowed them to lead. You know, a, a true leader is not afraid to give up control and let somebody else get the credit, even when they did all the work and to let people blossom. And I had to learn that the hard way. It was, it was, it's much easier being a pastor by trying to go and do it all yourself than entrusted in the hands of a person who might drop the ball. And when they do drop the ball, oh, man, I should have done it. I shouldn't have given it. And, but no, no, it's better to equip people and release them for ministry. That's the goal, should be the goal of every church and every leader. He gave... His life for them. He died for you. And the early church modeled this kind of community. Uh, they, vote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Daily, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, some people have taken this and said, uh, the Bible says that as Christians, we're to be communists. You know, to live in a commune and not, nobody can own any property and all that. Well, you find in other places of Scripture where they do have property. The Bible uh, sometimes it's descriptive and sometimes prescriptive. In other words, sometimes it's just describing what's going on, but it's not saying you got to do it like this. These early Christians at this particular place, they decided, they felt led to share everything. Um, and there's been a lot of attempts by Christians throughout history to form communes. Um, anybody having a manna refrigerator? Remember a manna, it's appliance. That started out of a Christian commune up in New York. Um, I believe Kellogg cereals came out of a Christian commune up in Battle Creek, Michigan. None of those communes exist today. Uh, they tried it, but, you know, it really doesn't work. Uh, it, it's easy to, it sounds good, uh, but it, it really, we're not called to be, we're, li we're to live in community, but not be communists. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway. Um, But if you do own something, are you willing to let it go to help somebody else? Uh, I think being a healthy Christian is to have a heart of compassion. This church has always had that. We're an inner city church. 
some of you may not know, we started the Christian Assistance Ministry. We started the SAM Shelter which, for the homeless, which has morphed into Haven for Hope. We started the Christian Dental Clinic, which all these are still going on, and largely under Lewis's leadership. This church has always had a heart for the least, last, and the lost. And the early church heard the gospel daily. They prayed diligently. They shared the Lord's Supper. They experienced the power of God, shared a communal life, drew others into that community of faith. Um, when I was at, oh, let's move to the next one. This is a key point to grasp. Discipleship groups are not just a program in the church. Um, when I went to Highland Park Prez, that church was in the ditch. We had the split nine years before I got there. The blood wasn't dry on the floor yet. And uh, the thing was siloed, and it was in the harbor. I was afraid to go out to sea again. And uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to do what I did at my last church, except on steroids this time. We're going to become a disciple-making church. Not everybody liked that. They prefer a happy church, a happy neighborhood church. I heard, actually heard people say that. I'm like, no, I don't think that's what Christ is calling us to be. Disciple making one percenter church. So um, we had a we had an associate pastor for discipleship, and we had a discipleship department, and we had an associate pastor for evangelism and an evangelism department. I got I didn't get rid of them. I got rid of those departments. Are you against? Discipling wrong against evangelism? No. I said to the session, I want to get rid of that nomenclature, and really not just the nomenclature, I want to get rid of those departments because whenever you have a department in the church, that means people that are interested in that can go mess around in that department. But if you're not, that'll never be on your radar. Evangelism, discipling. Instead, what we did is we incorporated a discipleship component into every thing in the church. If you were in the choir, they had to be discipling each other through some form. Um, every group in the church had to have a discipling component. It worked. It worked for the most part. So, well, we're going to have time for questions today. Final word, the only way to respond to these challenges is to focus attention on building life-transforming communities and making a, and growing disciples within that community. This isn't easy. Life-transforming community cannot be accomplished with slick advertising or any other corporate approach to church growth. It requires that people be drawn into a deliberate community that attempts to model God's life among the peoples of the world. That's Chris's comment there in, in his book. Um, I want to issue a challenge, a twofold challenge to this class. If you're not in a small life transformational group, and I know many of you are, get in one. It, it, sometimes it's scary. There's, I don't know how many dozens of them are. Some are uh, on the church radar, some are not. They're kind of just, they just start and they don't publicize that they exist. But if you're not in a group where you're, in fact, to be a healthy Christian, I don't think you should interpret the Bible 
on your own. A lot of people say, well, I'm just going to figure out what this means on my own. Bible study is best done in community. Theology is best done in community. Listen to other voices. Um, there's just no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Get into a small group. If you don't know how to do that, come to me. I'll help you navigate your way into one. And don't go in there with all these expectations that it's going to just be some kind of uh, whistles and bells and Jesus is going to show up and angel. It might be hard. Uh, it might be hard to share intimately with other people. Um, that's okay. That's moving toward health. Um, secondly, what should this mean for First Pres San Antonio? Large churches like ours, they have to be programmatic. We have to have programs. Um, but that should never be where it ends. A lot of churches think they're successful because they got 1,800 programs going on. A lot of times programs can distract us from the real deal. We get caught up in the machinery of the church and making it run. Pastors get caught up in that. It takes a lot of effort to keep the plates spinning, and you lose sight of what this is really all about. It's about transforming people's lives in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what might this mean for First Press? I don't know. I'm not senior pastor anymore. Um, if I were, and I quit being senior pastor, uh, I was here long enough to get us out of the denomination, uh, but I didn't feel called beyond that. And sometimes I, some people want me to stay until I was 70. I originally agreed to do that, and then I thought, no, this church needs a younger guy. And so I stepped out and went to Indonesia instead. If I'd stayed to 70, I would have done what I did at Highland Park Press. I'd say, we need to be a one-percenter church. In other words, we're going to be that one percent in that one percent of the churches in the nation that are growing the kingdom of God. Being a programmatic church with a lot of committed Christians and everything's going, firing on eight, but we're not growing the kingdom. That's, that's not what the church is all about. So um, I would encourage you, if you're on the session of this church, to pray about, should I say something to the leadership of the church? I've said something to the leadership already. Um, but I think what would happen if we all prayed that First Pres would become a one-percenter church, that most or new member classes, most, 30%, it's not in the Bible. I don't know, that just dropped out of the sky to me. 15%, 80% would be new believers. And who do you know that's not a part of a family of faith? For the first time in American history, less than 50% of Americans are connected to any kind of faith community. Buddhists, Hindus, whatever. For the first time ever. So we've got people bowling alone all over the place. They're over your back fence. They're in the apartment above you. They're checking you out at HEB. Um, what would it mean to invite them to come here and experience life transformational people? I don't know. That ball in your court. My job is to challenge you, not to do it for you. Um, you know, that somebody said, um, you know, 
Pastors are paid to be good. Lay people are good for nothing. <laughs> now, you're, that's funny, but the real truth is you are the front lines of the church, not me. I'm in the commissary back behind the front lines peeling potatoes to feed you. You're the front lines out there. And yes, you are good for nothing. We're not paying you. I had a pastor friend who was riding a bike in Paris one time, and somebody saw him and started going, I'm a tour, I'm a tour, I'm a tour. He thought he was being insulted, called an amateur. And he asked somebody about that, and he goes, no, no. He was saying, you're doing this because you love it for free. You're doing it, um, not because somebody's paying you to do it. So be an amateur Christian. Be an amateur. Don't be a pro. Be an amateur Christian. There's a hurting world out there that needs your witness. Okay, we've got time for a few questions or a challenge, a rebuttal. I've got a teachable spirit. Check me. Questions, comments? Okay. Or forever hold your peace. Okay, I'll give you a chance. VA's coming up with a... How many people here have had your life transformed by this congregation in some way? When I left here after 10 years as associate pastor, I, when I tell people, I said, that's where my spiritual taproot goes, the first press, San Antonio, no matter where I went. And, you know, that's the just winning someone to Christ and moving on. That feels really good. I want them to Christ, and now I'm going to get another. The hard thing is discipling somebody. You have to invest your life in them. What if they ask me hard questions? I can't answer them. What if they get mad at me? I mean, connecting with another person and discipling them, sometimes that can be bloody. And uh, it's easier just to kind of do hit and run evangelism and not have to deal with <laughs> So thank you for the, glad you're here at, at First Press. Any, any other questions or comments? B.A., I know you got one. Some of my dearest friends, of course, have gone to glory, and others 
have moved to North Carolina. <laughs> they go, they come and they go, but that doesn't mean, and I have found that still, if we phone each other, we're right back in that moment. We're always in the church. We're always in community with each other. We're always discussing the wonderful people that we've been blessed to know and the great pastors we've had. My privilege. I'm going to leave you with a true story. You need to hear this because there's a lot of negative stuff going on with the church in America today. It's declining, and we all know that stuff. Um, and Ellen has helped us put together the initial thrust of this. I, I call it the LZ Project, Lewis Abendon Study Center. We're, we're developing a seminary here because we've looked around. Your sessions looked around and said, where are pastors going to come from in the future? Uh, there is no eco-seminary. Um, all the mainline seminaries, including my own, I wouldn't send a Unitarian there. Uh, they would get messed up even more. And so really the only seminary I believe I'd recommend is Reformed Theological Seminary. They have about eight campuses. Um, so we connected with Reformed Seminary and a group called Third Mill, which produces this online biblical curriculum uh, in about 22 different languages. It's the Bible for everyone for free. That's their motto. And also Redeemer Press down the street, our PCA sister church, and the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico is kind of watching what we're doing to maybe connect with us. And uh, so we soft launched this uh, fall uh, three different cohorts. One was for lay people here at the church that wanted to maybe get a theological education for free without having to go to seminary. Uh, one was uh, church leaders from a variety of, I think, how many, 30 churches or something? Seven. Seven churches around the area. Church leaders. And then finally, uh, a cohort of church planters. We, we partnered with about 12 church planters. We decided our role in church planning is not to go out and buy a piece of land, and, but to find kind of Lone Ranger Church planters are out there on their own. We vet them. These guys are sharp. We support them. Well, we brought those church planters together on Tuesdays for seven weeks, Mitchell and myself, and went through this curriculum. And the, the email I sent out to the group, Tuesday was our last time together until January. And I said, you've renewed my hope in the church, capital C, in America. These 12 guys are, now if they have beards, tattoos and they're pierced but they I said you're of far higher caliber than most of the guys I went to seminary with and these guys are brilliant creative and they their church plants are taken off next week from today Richard uh, Pratt who's the founder of third mill mill third millennium he'll be in our pulpit all services Sunday night he will be preaching, and we'll have all our church plant congregations coming together for a joint worship service Sunday night, I think it's 6 p.m. I'm going to have to miss it. I'm going to be preaching at First Pres Amarillo on the Reformation Sunday. I'll be in the air flying back Sunday. But uh, I hope you'll be a part of that. But 
and these guys were kind of out there by themselves. And they've come into this life transformational group, the 12 of them, feeding off each other, encouraging each other, building each other up, and sending them back out there with greater confidence and faithfulness. So, and you're doing that. And we have 80-some people total involved. Correct. We were hoping for 12 to 15. So, yeah. And this is all about life transformation, not just information. Let's pray. Lord God, you're doing great things. Help us to get out of the way and let your Holy Spirit take us where you want to go, not where we think we need to go, and keep us faithful. Uh, Lord, we struggle with a lot of things, and when we mess up, help us to fess up, and uh, knowing that sometimes that's even a more powerful witness than when we are just walking the walk. And I thank you for each person here. Bless them, whether they're going home or into worship. And uh, Lord, help us to live faithfully this week following the lead of your Holy Spirit. And help us to be life transformational in the lives of others. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.